tuned into Geek Elite Radio. Good luck. The future comes, and now my watch begins. It shall not end until my death. I shall miss no game, withhold no news, report all rumors. I shall wear no jerseys and plead allegiance to no side. I shall live and die on my webpage. I am the word in the darkness. I am the watcher of the TV. I am the megaphone that informs the realms of geek. I pledge my hands and name to the Geek's Watch. For the geeks and all the geeks to come. That's right, we are the Geeks Watch, and we are here to guard you from all the false and negative geek news and try and let in all the good news. So, John, this week we are going to uh, finally have our talk about Warcraft. I went and saw it in the theater, and uh, I know that you have a certain opinion about it. That's right. So why don't you go ahead and... uh, Give our audience what you, what you thought of the movie. All right, so I'm a fan of Warcraft. I, I play World of Warcraft uh, when the funds allow. And I'm a real big fan of the story. I like it. It's really cool. I mean, it spans everything from, you know, stories of skirmishes between, you know, a couple of characters all the way up to, like, a celestial conflict of, you know, good versus evil. So it's got everything. And... Although, in principle, I liked the movie, I felt like it left out way too much, and I would have actually have rather gone into this movie not knowing anything about Warcraft than going in knowing that there's so much plot that had to be cut out because of its runtime, and also because it's obviously the first part of an intended trilogy. Um... That being said, I'm also really curious to hear what you have to say about it, because I'm not sure how much you know about Warcraft, but I'm guessing you're more on the uh, casual side of things. <laughs> well, there you go. That This is true. This is uh, this is the first time for me, because I actually know absolutely nothing about Warcraft, like other than just what I hear in passing, because I've never played Warcraft, I've never played World of Warcraft, uh, I've never been into the genre. I mean, no, that's not true. I mean, I like Sword and Sandal. Or Sword and Shield uh, movies and stuff, but... Sword and Sorcery. Sword and Sorcery, there you go. Um, I, I just I, I just never got into playing the game. I'm not a big uh, MMORPG, like, player, just because I'd never... Like, especially those kind of games, I feel that the the the, the actions are too limited. Like, like, if you... Whatever you... Like, everything is, is, is kind of... Uh, put into buttons for you like I, it's not I, I want the experience of, of playing D&D tabletop game you know where I can do just about anything that my imagination can come there that could happen and, it, and it's just more to me it's not it's too limited so that's why I've never played that game I completely understand okay <laughs> as long as I, I, I'm making sense so yeah. when I'm usually watching comic book games or comic book movies I know I can't. It's hard for me to separate myself from the person who reads comic books 
and knows these the backgrounds to these stories. Uh, as a great example is, is X-Men Apocalypse that just happened. A lot of people... Uh, I mean, there's a lot of people that are probably casual X-Men fans like the movie, whereas I read a, read a lot of com- X-Men comic books, did not like the movie. So going into this, Warcraft, I enjoyed the movie. I didn't... I, cause, probably because I don't know a lot of the background story. Um, I... I'm not going to say that I loved it. Uh, I I just felt like I enjoyed it. I didn't I didn't feel like I wasted my two hours. Right on. So after this point, we're going to get into spoilers. So anybody who hasn't watched the movie and would like to, you could probably skip to minute twenty five around there. Uh, we'll we'll start talking about a lineage for Game of Thrones. But for right now, spoiler alert. <laughs> John, what else did, like, to me, the movie came off, and I know, you know, lots of geeks and nerds are going to probably fry me for this, but it it came off as, uh, like, The Fellowship of the Ring or A New Hope. It's, it, it had its own contained little story, but it is definitely setting up for a bigger trilogy. Well, coincidentally, mentioning Lord of the Rings, um, I kind of wished it stole more from that trilogy <laughs> um particularly one of the things the lord of the rings did so awesomely was setting up the universe you have that like five minute prologue where it establishes what the rings are who sauron is the different races um what their effects were and the passage of time something like that would have been so helpful for this movie because when you first get introduced to certain characters, I mean, I guess we're spoiling, so I'll just go ahead and say it. When you get introduced to the character of Gul'dan, the evil green orc with the spikes coming out of his back, right? he's already full-fledged, like, the evil dude that nobody really knows who he is, and he's got, like, this crazy demonic power, and they're killing people left and right or aliens, depending on, you know, what side of the portal you're on, in order to suck their life essence out to power the portal and all that. There's a lot of stuff that's being skipped over, just kind of <laughs> plain old glossed. <laughs> For example, uh, and I don't want to get too much into the nitpicky little details this soon, but this is just a quick one I wanted to throw in there. At the very beginning, when you see all those blue people with horns, you know, getting their life force sucked out for the first opening of the portal, right? Those are called Drenai. Okay. And those beings are actually aliens that are marooned or like crash landed on the planet of the orcs. So in this fantasy sword and sorcery world, there's also sci-fi elements. They're from a different planet. Wow. Um, and the whole reason why that one guy, Gul'dan, is green and evil and has this evil sorcerer's power is because those guys are there. See, there is a faction of demons called the Burning Legion that are after the Draenei. Because, again, lots of plot that's a, that takes place way before the events of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so when they track them down to the planet of the orcs, which is called... Uh, um, oh, man, I'm completely spacing on it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't, I'm telling you, man, like sleep deprivation just completely messes with you. Oh, Draenor. Yeah. It's called Draenor. Dr- okay. Draenor. <laughs> I have to think. It's, it sounds like a cleaning product. Draenor. Oh, there it is. Anyway. So, yeah, the demons track them down to this planet, 
but because they're demons, uh, you know, they can't cross over into the mortal realm. They need like, you know, special powers and whatever to to cross over. So they instead send avatars to talk to some of the locals, in this case, me and the orcs, and say, hey, we'll give you power if you, you know, kill these guys for us. They've been kind of a thorn on our side for a while. And uh, one of them's like, um, I don't know, it seems kind of shady. Then Gul'dan steps in and is like, hey, give me the power, I'll do anything you want. And that kind of sets up his character. He's just completely like power-hungry, he'll do whatever it takes, including betraying his own people, his own customs, just to get as much power as he can. So that leads us into them creating the portal, and, I mean, that's sort of where the movie starts. Again, I am so super paraphrasing and condensing so much story here. It's, right. And, I, yeah. I mean, I understand I understand why they would in the movie. I mean, uh, it, it is terrible to leave out things that, that we feel are important to the backstory. Because you're right. When, I, when you're thrown, as, for me, as a person who doesn't know the history, you're thrown into this movie very fast and things are happening that you don't quite understand like why is some of the orcs like brown skin and why are some of them green skin you know why was the kid of Doratan green skin after he was resurrected by uh the the evil shaman orc or whatever you want to call him which was weird because like he's all about death but yet he still brought to life this this baby and then what is the the significance of the different color magic? Like, um, what was the 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 guardian's name? Mezra or uh, his Me- name was Medivh. Medivh, there you go. Like yeah. he uses blue magic, and then all of a sudden, obviously, green is evil magic. And then there was yellow looking magic in there, so I didn't I didn't quite understand what the difference between all of them meant. All right, so like a quick one hundred and one on Warcraft magic, uh, the green magic. <laughs> is referred to as fail magic. Right. And it's considered to be like extremely corrupting, extremely toxic to the like the environment wherever it's used. It's dangerous to the person using it. It starts to deform you and corrupt you and make you look all demony because that's essentially what it is. It's the pure chaotic energy that comes from like demonic sources and it runs on life force. Like it, something needs to die in order for it to make its, you know, right. its juju work. Right. Uh, the the more bluish magic that's um, that would be considered more like just the regular arcane and natural magic that exists in the environment, and um, the wizards, the mages of Azeroth, which is the name of the, the where the humans live, right. that planet, um, they've learned to use it over time. Um, again, this isn't covered in in this movie at all, but there used to be a huge font of natural raw magic. Um, they used to call it the Well of Eternity. But these demons that I mentioned earlier that were after the Draenei, which were never named in the movie proper, um, also once paid a short visit to Azeroth and tried to take this uh, Well of Magic. Because it was so powerful, it would be able to get all of their demons through from their dimension into ours or theirs. Um, they weren't successful. In fact, they ended up destroying the Well of Eternity, which then became the Maelstrom, and it even separated the supercontinent of Azeroth into, like, four different smaller continents. Um, you ended up with, like, Northrend, Pandaria, uh, Kalimdor, and the Western, or the Eastern Kingdoms, I'm sorry. 
Um, again, none of that covered in the movie. <laughs> there was a theory for this particular plot. At the same time, though, one of my biggest problems is it moves at a breakneck pace. I mean, you go from location to location, and you just kind of get introduced to characters, most of the time not even named. This um, is true. Yeah, I mean, that's that was another thing is that there's there's a lot of death in this in this movie, and you don't. I don't. I mean. As a as the watcher, I really didn't care for for many of the character deaths because you don't care for those characters. Um, which brings me to one point is that there's a lot of actors in this movie that I really like um, that I've seen from other things. Like Paula Patton plays uh, Garona, Ben Foster mm-hmm. is Medivh, Dominic Cooper is uh, the King, um, Clancy Brown is Blackhand, uh, Ruth Nega is the Queen. Of Azeroth, and uh, one of the one of the ones that I really like that he you know he he he's in just about everything sci-fi and fantasy like you see it he's there is Ryan Robbins he played Karos I guess his name was but he was one of the guys from from the Azeroth side and I I mean he's he's got a lit IMDb list that that's from everything I mean you probably have seen stuff that he's been in I don't know if you know who I'm talking about just off the top of your head. I don't know him by name, but I do remember seeing one particular like knight or soldier and thinking, "Hey, I know that guy from somewhere." Yeah, exactly. I mean, just I looking at his IMDb is he's on Arrow, he was on Continuum, he was on uh, Ascension, he was in Falling Skies, uh, The Killing, uh, Hell on Wheels, Sanctuary. Yeah, you know, these, I think that's the dude. Yeah, you know, he's a great character actor, and he's he doesn't get enough of. Uh, screen time and a lot of things he does. So, and this would be one of the things. And it's just, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these characters end up dying. Like Ben Foster, a great actor. He's and his character dies. Uh, yeah, I will say this. Speaking <clears throat> of deaths and all that, um, one thing I will praise this movie for is that although there were changes from the source material, it is probably the most um, faithful adaptation of a video game to a movie that I've ever seen. <laughs> I would um, I would say I would have to say that's probably not too hard. A lot of the video game <laughs> the movies are pretty pretty bad and usually just in name only. Oh yeah, but I mean say like they they definitely went very far. I mean they even had one of the co like people that's in charge of the lore of the actual game co-wrote the screenplay, I believe, uh, Chris Metzen. Kind of looks like Tony Stark, if you ever look him up. Kind of interesting guy. <laughs> Which is funny, um, because you had Dominic Cooper in this, who played Howard Stark. Yeah, I mean, the <laughs> connections are there. Uh, Kevin Bacon's just a couple people away. There you go. I also heard a couple, I heard a couple interviews with Duncan Jones, the director of this, who also directed Source Code and Moon, which are great movies in themselves. Uh, but he is a huge war. I mean, according to the interviews, he's a huge Warcraft player. So he had a very strong uh, connection to the video game, thus wanting to make it as close to the video game as he could. I imagine. Mm-hmm. And that it was. I mean, there was definitely fan service. There were moments here or there where you see, uh, you know, certain locations, and it's really awesome to see them in, on the big screen. Um, you know, little inside jokes like, you know, the Murloc is one that a lot of people refer to. It's that little kind of frog looking man with a spear. Oh, okay. Early on in the movie, and it goes like, <laughs> like 
it's just a stupid Warcraft thing, but you know, it's there for the fans, I guess. Um, yeah, like they adhered very closely overall, and some of the changes that they did make were actually kind of on the better side. Like, oh, that kind of makes simplifies things a little bit better. You know, it's what, you know, kind, of, you what, have... what kind of changes were those? Um, well, like for instance, the reason why Garona kills the king in in the original story is because she was being like remotely controlled by like a combination of Gul'dan and Medivh, basically. Uh. Um, I like this version better because it shows that she had more um, more of a choice in the matter. Right. Like, she could have chosen not to, but that would have led to all their deaths. She chose like a, she basically made a hard choice that was kind of split her from the humans but you know yeah that finally was finally give her acceptance that was a really uh great point in the movie when you know uh the king turns to her and says look we're all gonna die here i'm definitely gonna die here so if you kill me it only makes it better so that you can be on their side and hopefully barter peace between the two races and just like man that is a choice to make to to yeah. and obviously no one else heard this conversation so She's all on her own. Like none of the humans like her. Uh, you kind of get this idea. What's the uh, the main human guy? The guy that we followed. What's his name? Oh, uh, Anduin Lothar. Lothar. So yeah, which apparently is played by the guy who played who was in Vikings. Yeah, Travis Fimmel, I believe, is his name. So uh, you know, he obviously the two of them were growing an attachment to each other, and he's now looking at her differently. And even his last uh, conversation with. Uh, the I don't know if he's the new guardian or if whatever he is the the wizard mage guy. Um, he yeah, uh, Kagdar. Kagdar is that what his name was? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. He uh, he's like oh she wasn't what we we thought she was and he's like oh, I don't know that doesn't seem really in her uh, her personality to do that so it's I mean obviously that's that's setting up for the rest of the mo- the rest of the trilogy but I it was I thought it was a great character moment for. Not only her, but for the king. Yeah, it really kind of showed the division of, you know, she was finally finding acceptance and she had to make the the harshest call of all, which now she's welcome where she wasn't welcome before, but it's not where she truly wants to be, but it could lead to better things. It's so political. Very, very political. West Wing, kind of. (laughs) So speaking of uh, Garona... Was Medivh telling her that he was her father? Uh, that's very perceptive. Um, basically, yes. Um, in the original version of the story, I guess, um, he's not really her father. She's kind of uh, not... It. Okay, her story's confusing, first of all. <laughs> um, at some point, she believes that she's half-human, half-orc, so that's why she's called Half-Orkin. Um, but then I think later it turns out she's half orc, half Draenei. Ah. Um, but in the movie, it seems like they simplified it and they're like, oh no, yeah, I'm, I'm basically your dad because they explained that there was like a six year period where Medivh was gone. Right. And I don't remember specifically if they mentioned it in the movie, but she basically was magically aged to her present age. Ah. Um, so the the implication being that he Medivh, you know, traveled to as to uh, Draenor, met with Gul'dan. They talked a lot of demon stuff, and while he was there, he knocked up an orc, I guess. Right. <laughs> no, uh, 
or maybe just with magic, but still he's he's definitely responsible in some way for her being born in the movie universe. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Was, oh, and another thing. Um, I wanted to bring up real quick the, the whole little side story of Medivh being possessed by a demon. Okay. Um, there is a whole lot of story regarding that, but that wasn't just any demon. That was like the demon of this universe. Ah. That was like the the devil, basically. Right. Um, his name is Sargeras. And in the lore of Warcraft, I'm going to give you like a real, real fast version. Um, there are these beings that are the equivalent of like celestials in the Marvel universe. Right. They're called the Titans. And their whole deal is, you know, traveling to different worlds and, you know, ordering them to the in their image, you know, because most worlds are pretty primordial and they kind of, you know, put things in place that'll help shape it up so that it becomes more, you know, civilized and life happens faster. And, you know, they're just like creators, you know, they like doing stuff. Um, one of the Titans, his name is Sergeras, his job is to clear out the worlds of any evil influences be they demons be they uh lovecraftian creatures called old gods you know anything like that it's his job to get rid of them Mm -hmm. so over time he he begins to get depressed and corrupted by the fact that you know no matter what he does he can never get rid of these demons you know they as many as he kills there's always more to take their place eventually he comes to the conclusion that the titans are actually wrong for wanting order in the universe that the natural order of things is chaos and he snaps and rebels and basically starts hiring the demons to work for him so that they can go and undo all of the works of the of the titans now in a nutshell that's his story um when the legion the the burning legion first comes to azeroth like many years in the past um again they're not powerful enough to cross over through the dimension so they send an avatar in this case it's the avatar of sergeras uh he fights Medivh's mother Medivh's mother is the guardian at this time so she's the most powerful you know human mage uh, in existence and defeats the avatar because the avatar is obviously not full power it's just you know a, a smaller version of this demon guy right now, she defeats his body, but his spirit goes into uh, Medivh's mother, and it stays there silently until she becomes pregnant, at which point it transfers over to Medivh as a fetus, and it stays in there throughout all of his life, slowly gaining in power and gaining influence over Medivh without Medivh even realizing it. Ah. Hence, when the events of the movies take place, at this point, the demons are part of him has already, you know, been doing stuff behind his back. And then eventually you see the demon manifest itself fully, although still not at its full power because, again, it's still only an avatar of the full thing. Right. But I thought it was interesting. Like, in the movie, going in knowing nothing, is like, oh, he was possessed by a demon. Interesting. But there's so much more like, behind <laughs> that. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I mean, obviously there's uh, – it. it it does set up uh, a lot for, for I mean, even with uh, Kadar or Kag, whatever his name was, you know, uh, coming in and, and defeating the Avatar, you, you, I don't know, to me, he's still sitting in that pool, and he still took in a lot of the evil fell, fell magic, so uh, I, I imagine as a movie watcher, that, that sets up stuff for, for a return. 
Um, yeah, I believe eventually he does return, like in a redeemed form, and kind of helps out undo some of the stuff he's done. But you also mentioned that there was some yellow magic, and I wanted to touch up on that one real quick as well. Okay. Um, when Kagdar is reading through one of the books, and he sees a strange passage that says something to the effect of, you know, through light there is shadow, and through shadow there is light, or something to that effect. Well, in the movie they say dark. Or dark, yeah. Um, basically what that's setting up is that's, that, that's, there's a whole another aspect to Warcraft lore that has to do with, uh, what's considered to be holy and unholy magic. Um, that's the main power that the, the priest and the paladin classes use in the game. And it has like a completely different effect, but it's supposed to be really good against the, the, the corrupting and fell energies and all that stuff. Um, we didn't see any priests or paladins in the game or in the movie at this point because they're not really called on to action yet. Um, but they should be making appearances later on. And yeah, the, so that magic kind of manifests itself in like a slightly yellower, more, you know, white light because that's essentially what they call it. They call it the light. Oh, okay. And, um, Cactor's not supposed to have that. That's actually, <laughs> um, pretty much limited exclusively to people who practice like essentially um you know their version of the faith whatever it is that like the holy power is its own separate thing from arcane energies so it was very interesting that he's the one that kind of figured that out and used it because that's not really canon but like i said um for the most part a lot of the changes they made were for the better that was just like slightly confusing one that hopefully they kind of expand upon in future sequels should there be any thanks to the chinese <laughs> right yeah i mean they definitely, it definitely it did a lot a lot better overseas than it did here uh the last the last few things that i wanted to talk about just just so we can get them out of the way before uh, we have to wrap it up uh one of the things i thought was interesting was the moses like uh allegory there with the with the baby oh, yeah being sent down the river um i imagine there's more to that in the video game and obviously we'll probably be more to that in the in the in the future movies travis fennel obviously was probably the best at doing his uh fight scenes and i imagine that has to do with a lot of his uh viking uh show being holding the swords and axes and stuff like that uh and then the fight scene between Dorosan and uh, the 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 shaman orc, whatever his name was, I and forget. Cool oh yeah, like that scene was I thought was done really well with all the CGI and the fight between the two of them and him throwing off his cape and kind of doing like a uh, Grandmaster Pycelle like imitation of Hey, I'm not that <laughs> old and feeble. Watch this. <laughs> yeah, the CGI was definitely one of the hallmarks of the movie like i really liked how expressive the orcs were and for the most part the effects were really good except for maybe just a few of the fight scenes where things are moving kind of fast yeah exactly that's where you just kind of see some of the blurriness and stuff but yeah like that was really cool um overall like i gotta give the movie like a c plus you know it, it it's 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 a good start it wasn't great there's lots of room to expand on and I don't think it's anyone's fault in particular. I think it's just 
too much story to tell in one single movie. It, de- it definitely is. And uh, you know what? I'm right there with you on that, that grading to C+, giving it around like a 3.5 or something. You know, that's, that's exactly what I would uh, give this movie. So, uh, good. I, 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 that's a great place to wrap it up and, and leave it there. And we, as we move into our lineage for this week, which is Lord Frey. Lord Walder Frey, yeah, <laughs> Argus Filch himself. That's true. Yeah. It is hard for me to to not see Filch whenever I watch, I watch the scenes with him. Well, because they look exactly the same. <laughs> it's like the same hair, the same clothes. All he's missing is the cat. Exactly. <laughs> so, Lord Walder Frey, um, the Lord of uh, the twins, which is an interesting castle because um, over in the Riverlands, you know, they're called that for a reason. There's lots of rivers, lots of treacherous water to have to traverse. His particular castle is built um, on the banks of one of the rivers. I believe it's the Green Fork. And it's one of the big ones that sort of bisects the, the north from the south because the Riverlands are essentially right in the center of Westeros. It's a very strategic location. Um, once that you know, a plot point that's going to matter very uh, importantly here. And we've also uh, talked about it in the in past episodes. Yeah. Um, so Lord Walder Frey is basically um, he's a he's a minor lord at the time that the the show takes place. Uh, he's actually one of the bannermen for the Tullys. Oh. Um, yeah, so he's um, he's not quite up there at the beginning of the show. He has a reputation for being kind of an asshole. Um, he's considered to be, and I'm quoting from um, from the uh, wiki of Ice and Fire. Uh, he is known as a vain, prickly, ambitious, and untrustworthy man. So, if he was a bannerman for the Tullys, why did he give? Why was it so difficult? Like. Why did they have to promise so much to him when Caitlin Stark went up to ask him for like they he had to promise him or Rob Stark a hand in marriage to one of his daughters, right? Yes. Well, the reason is this. He he is a very proud man. And um in the events before a Game of Thrones actually begins, uh-huh. Lord Walder Frey was supposed to be getting married to like his eighth wife, I believe. And he sent an invitation to his um, his leash lord, you know, which was Hoster Tully, Caitlin's father, to which uh, Hoster Tully politely refused because he was already getting up in age. If you remember, uh, when he's introduced in the show, he's already dead. Right. Uh, he's already up there. Um, lord Frey took it very personally. And although technically, yes, he... Uh, he is supposed to be a bannerman of the Tullys. He still um, has some weight, you know, given that he's so old and has a strategic area that people need. He basically imposed his um, what little authority he had um, over the, you know, the, the crossing area when uh, it was Sorry. time for the for Rob's <laughs> troops to cross over. It's Jarvis. Hey, hey. Cut it out. <laughs> okay, keep going. Well, he, he feels really opinionated about Frey. He does. He doesn't like him. He, he, ever since the Red Wedding. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't invite that guy. Well, anyway, so the main point of it is he was very proud and felt like the, the snub he received was, you know, too much, you know, and for some reason, everybody was like, he's an old man. We just got to do what he wants in order to, you know, get what we need right now. And um, also because Lord Hoster Tully was pretty much no longer really the acting lord. It was technically Edmure, and Edmure was more of a pushover. Right. That's primarily the main reason why Hoster Tully kind of got away with all of the, the you know, bolstering he was doing. Um. Let's see. He is um, he is rumored to have over a hundred children altogether. Frey. Yes. Wow. Because even well, though he's about ninety years old at the beginning of the show, he's you know still got it where it counts, I guess. Uh, <laughs> although, only about twenty of those are legitimate children, though. Right. Because you know he's just like a lascivious old bastard. Um. And he even talks about it in, in a few of the episodes. Though. He doesn't care what happens to his current wife. Oh, yeah. And not only that, but he's got a very... Um, uh, what's the reference I wanted to pull up? I want to say he's kind of like the Vogons of uh, Hitchhiker's Guide, where he uh, he makes the environment so that none of the heirs actually ever feel secure about you know, their inheritance. Right. Um, because they're so, disp- like, disposable, I guess. Well, obviously, with Ednir's wife and and son, which would be his grandson, he's kept them in a dungeon or whatever, right? Well, not the wife and the son. It was mostly just Ednir. Oh, I thought they said that they kept him, that kept her down there, too. Not, just not with Ednir. No, she was she was still living a decent life, but Jamie wasn't afraid of using her as a bargaining chip because okay. at the end of the day, Ed, Frey probably wouldn't care. I mean, you saw how how little he cared that Caitlin threatened his wife's life at the time. Right. Um. So anyway, that brings us up to the events of Game of Thrones season one, when Rob Stark begins, or was it season two? Season two. Season two. Yeah. When Rob Stark is, you know, declaring himself the king in the north and needs to make passage to the south, um, the only way they can get through quickly would be going through uh, the twins. Otherwise, they would be losing a lot of time going to the next closest, um, you know, bridge. Uh, they knew that it was going to be a challenge because of the whole snubbery of the wedding before, and Caitlin basically says, okay, well, I managed to broker a deal. Uh, the problem is you're going to have to marry one of his daughters, you know, telling this to Rob Stark. And Rob's like, damn it, well, I guess. I mean, wasn't <laughs> on my plan. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, that, that engagement then gets set, and all of a sudden, you know, they have the support of the phrase. Rob then promptly throws that in the trash when he falls in love with um, Talissa Mager. In the show, in the books, it was Jane Westerling, a different character altogether. But basically just goes up and marries this woman, completely destroying his vow that he made to to Lord Frey. Again, a proud man that you don't want to screw over in this fashion. Right. Uh, He claims that, you know, he's going to be cool with it. He even invites them to the wedding of Edmure and his other daughter. 
as a show of good faith, saying, well, like, you know, maybe I'm going to get one of my daughters married to somebody, so it's all good. Not realizing they were stepping into a trap. Um, he basically was promised uh, protection from the Lannisters, or the Baratheons, technically, um, for their support if he basically betrayed them by dishonoring the age-old tradition of the guest right, which is once you offer a guest food and shelter, they are supposed to be safe in your home. You're absolutely like not allowed to betray them. Well, he didn't care. You know, he's old and kind of senile and just doesn't give a crap about anything. Says, go ahead. All right, we'll betray them. Cool. That'll be my revenge for screwing me over. <laughs> kind of a bit of a, an exaggeration, maybe. A little overreaction. But nevertheless, what's done is done. And, you know, the whole War of the Five Kings pretty much ended right there. Yeah, this is true. That, I mean, that that was the the end of that, and uh, you know, Lannister, Jamie, or not Jamie Lannister, but uh, uh, Tywin Lannister, pretty much declared big, uh, bankruptcy victory at that point, and uh, went to King's Landing and saved the day at the Battle of the Black Gate. Blackwater. Blackwater. Why do I yeah. want to say Black Gate? I think that's the security team anyway uh yeah so you know he watergate i <laughs> know oh, that's black water <laughs> so they you know that that was the end of that now the interesting thing from that is that tywin lannister was obviously uh part of that whole dealing of the red wedding he's dead roose bolton who uh was obviously a bad man he's now dead Lord Frey is the only one that's not dead. That's that's still that was a part of that uh, betrayal. That's right. And right now he's feeling pretty high and mighty because as of <clears throat> recent events, he just got a hold of um, the castle at River Run, which was promised to him ever since the Red Wedding. Right. Now, thanks to the Blackfish, uh, the Blackfish escaping, uh, it was still under Tully control until the events of you know the most recent episodes. Where uh, Edmure finally surrendered it, uh, but nevertheless, this is true. There is no longer technically any houses to support the phrase, except for the Lannisters, and they're going to be having problems of their own here pretty soon <laughs> with all of the pending trials and tribulations back in King's Landing. This is this is very true, and I and I really don't see Lord Frey taking orders from Young Tomlin too well. No, yeah, at this point he's likely to just do as he pleases and they people for some reason listen. They're like, Okay, well, yeah, just <laughs> if you're if you're enough of an asshole and you know, cantankerous enough, it seems like they'll just let you be just to not deal with you. Well there you, there you go. He's is he's so like you said, you have he has surviving uh legitimate heirs and surviving illegitimate heirs. Um we haven't really seen he he doesn't have any sons right that was the biggest plot point of him, of uh uh Rob Stark marrying off one of his daughters right no he has sons in fact oh I, that's I right the, that... there was one at 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 the actual river run castle yeah okay yeah he does have sons the the problem is he has issues marrying off his daughters because no one wants to marry into his family 
That's the biggest issue. That's the biggest issue. Yeah. Fair enough. So there you go. Um, That's your lineage for this week. We will come back with another one next week. Uh, If you have any suggestions of who you'd like to know more about, please send send them in and uh, we will do what we can. But that will bring us to episode nine of season six, which... To me, the episode nines are the true season finales of the of the seasons because episode ten is just like an epilogue; it will set you up for the next season. Episode nine is usually the episode where big things happen, like uh, Ned Stark getting his head cut off, the battle at Blackwater, the uh, the Red Wedding, and you know, and so forth, so on and so forth. So the battle of the bastards was this episode nine in. Good Lord, I would have to say probably one of the best episodes of the of the show for me. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I coming from the the down point of the previous episode, which I thought was somewhat disappointing in quality, <laughs> to this, like, oh my gosh, like they just totally like just bitch slap me off in this. <laughs> so uh, basically. The, basically, the episode only takes place in two places. We have Marine, where we have Daenerys taking care of her business, and uh, Winterfell, where we finally see the battle between Jon Snow and Ramsay Bolton. Is there any other? Was there anything else covered in this episode? No, that was pretty much it. I'd like to save uh, the battle for the, the the end of what we talk about. So uh, then, let's talk about Marine with uh, Daenerys. Let's do that. So. She, like you said last week, uh, she comes in. She's like, "What the fuck did you guys? I've only been gone for a couple, a couple days, maybe a week, and, and the place is being overrun." Yeah, she had the face of a disappointed parent coming home to like <laughs> the big a, house like, party, <laughs> a, a pegger, Yeah, uh, and Tyrion just looks like he just wants to ground to swallow him whole right there. He's you know, looking down, like apologetic, and she just has like Daenerys has the coolest most like confident look on her face although she looks disappointed in him she still has this air of like you know what it's okay i got this well i mean with the giant black dragon on your side i would i'd be pretty arrogant about it too (laughs) yeah it's like daenerys got her groove back because she is in full form here and so yeah they the next scene after she says yeah it's cool we'll handle this uh, they're talking to the, the the former slavers who they made the deal with earlier in the season. Right, the ones that uh, Tyrion made the deal with. Right, and um, they're real quick to like out somebody when they say, "Okay, well, one of you has to die." Two of them immediately volunteer, like the lowest one on the totem pole. Which I thought was funny because he was the first one to talk. Like he was like he was the first one to be like, "You guys are idiots," you know, uh, or to think that we weren't. The, the the masters weren't going to try and uprise again and and take our our stuff back. They're our property. Like for what they say about the other two masters say about him, he, he was very quick to be like these people are our property. So like when yeah when she's like okay well one of you has to die. So uh, they yeah they you're right they just kind of throw him out in front and he starts begging for his life. <laughs> Yeah, then uh, Grey Worm walks up to him like he's about to execute him. 
and does this like super cool little like one motion unsheath his dagger and slits like the other two guys throats it's like so awesome yeah it helped that he was that i mean the the fact that the guy was kneeling down at that point oh, jesus i don't know yeah. if you, i don't know if you can hear that but my my computer's making noise so it's getting onto the the track oh, uh, i don't hear anything <laughs> but uh yeah he, he the, since the guy kneeled down it it had allowed him to be uh, saved so that uh worked out quite well for him um i did i, I love the part where the other two dragons kind of were kind of broke themselves out uh and started to attack uh i liked it when uh was dario was leading the the rest of the drothraki in battle yeah so that was pretty awesome too it was just a all around great scene, and then uh, after the battle is won, is when you have uh, Theon and his sister show up. Yeah, and she's presenting her plan or her her deal. And I was like, hey, I got ships. You need ships. Uh, all I want in return is I want to be the ruler of my area. Like I won't mess with your area. And Daenerys is like, okay, but. Uh, you got to change your ways. You know, you, you got to be a little more civilized. And she's like, ah, it's a tough sell, but okay. It's mutually beneficial for the both of us. I know. I love the scene where she's like, okay, you, you can't do any more raiding. You can't do any more raping. You can't. She's like, but that's what we do. That's our yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, taking the, uh, the tentacles off the Kraken. <laughs> so to speak. Although I do have to say it's probably one of my favorite moments between these two where I don't know the potential for a little romance might have <laughs> happened between Daenerys and Yara like what <laughs> this is true I mean the, the the sexual chemistry was definitely there and uh Daenerys is just Daenerys I mean there she it, it was funny to to see her not like totally brush it away when whenever it was brought up and and, and the, the fact that what'd you say your name what's uh yara 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 is 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 constantly being like look you know i'm into women we like these things we can both be rulers <laughs> the men were a bunch of idiots <laughs> it's time for queens to to rule yeah so that was power. that was an interesting little uh, exchange between the two, and and then the exchange between Tyrion and and Theon with the whole you know you were making a lot of jokes about me back time like last time I saw you and all of that and uh, you know Theon being very much more humbled than he ever than he was in the first season, uh, explaining to Daenerys that you know. Uh, I'm not fit to be king, but she is, and she's my sister. Yeah, and that's what that's what changed the whole tone of that conversation there. Yeah, it's pretty interesting how things are shaping up. So, uh, going into the the rest of the episode, which was a the good chunk of the episode, it was all about the Battle of the Bastards, which makes me happy because that was uh, something that I you know I'm I was definitely looking forward to, and I, I assume most of the audience was. As well as yourself. So oh, definitely. <laughs> so pre-battle, we have, you know, basically the advisors to Jon Snow and Sansa uh, going over the battle plan. And Sansa's like, look, 
Bolton, he's a psychopath. He's 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 gonna do shit that's gonna try and draw you out. Just don't play his game. And John's like, look, I fought scarier things <laughs> up uh, north of the wall. I'm not afraid of Ramsey Bolton. He's not gonna get me. But <laughs> there's one thing for fighting monsters, and there's another thing for fighting monsters. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> So they had his number, all right. Yeah. Oh, I, we, I guess we talked about the initial meeting between the t- the two of them when they're kind of, I don't know, setting rules or just feeling yeah, each other they out. Have, they have a little parley, um, and that seems to be kind of a common thing. I don't know if that's historically accurate, but it definitely happens a lot in Game of Thrones where you'll have like the leaders kind of have a real quick little like, so this is what's going to go down. You have any last-minute changes you want to give up now? And, <laughs> you know, there's usually some posturing, some bravado. Yeah, definitely you know, some posturing. I, I did like that Jon Snow threw the threw out the the one-on-one battle between the two of them first. He's like, "Hey, look, we can settle this right now. Neither one of our men have to die. Just me and you fight mano a mano." And Bolton's very much like, "Look, the stories are out there. We know that you're a great swordsman. You're probably one of the best in the in the north." Uh, so yeah, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to fight you one-on-one. Yeah. Not to mention the, the, the death stare that Liana Mormont's giving him the whole time too. <laughs> like it made me scared. I'm like, holy crap, man. I like that he tried to, tried to goad her too. And she just fucked you. Like, no, I don't give a fuck. You know, he's like, oh, okay. never mind. <laughs> like I could feel her eye twitching. <laughs> Uh, such a great character for that little girl. Uh, yeah. So uh, then, um, yeah, and you know he's just like, look, I, I still have your brother. You can uh, surrender me, and you can have him back. But then we we as we see at the beginning of the battle, young Rickon. <laughs> it is terrible, terrible running. <laughs> He knows that the the arrows are coming. Why wouldn't you serpentine? Why wouldn't you zigzag? That's the question heard around the internet. <laughs> yes. It's like, zigzag, man. <laughs> but I guess when you're uh, the son of a lord, you don't really get taught evasive maneuvers like that. <laughs> I guess you're, not. I don't think they ever expect you to be in the line of fire in that particular sense. <laughs> but we're jumping ahead a little bit. I did want to bring up um, a little bit after that parlay that they have they also discuss strategy in the tents right to which Jon Snow seems to be with the idea that it's going to be a losing battle and Sansa tries to convince him not to fall for any tricks um, rightfully so because it's exactly what happens but um, she holds back the information that she sent out word to the veil for help this is true and it's um I think that's going to play really heavily in this next episode because that could have changed things dramatically. It could have saved lives. Uh, at the same time, though, if Jon Snow knew that they were going to have reinforcements, they might not have had the 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 same battle plan of having most of Ramsay's forces outside because they thought they were going to overwhelm a smaller force. So she might have actually had some kind of brilliant tactician you know, point of view on the whole matter, but just decided to keep it to herself or it was just a really huge gamble. <laughs> no, I, I, I think you're right. The fact that the, the, the Knights of the Vale came 
at the end when uh, Bolton's men already were overwhelming John's men and and surrounding them, it it it, it was a great advantage because they were exposed from behind at that point and allowed them to uh, now fight them on two sides with John's men in the middle and the, the Knights of the Vale on the outside. Uh, if they had waited for those Knights of Vale, who, who knows? I mean, they could have been stuck inside the middle with them. Right, exactly. Uh, so it was in very strategic and lucky. I think it was more luck than anything else. I really don't think Sansa said, hey, wait back for most of the men to die before you guys come over the mountain. I just think it just yeah. happened to be that that's where they when they came. Yeah, and that's another thing that she said, too, is that, you know, she she was saying or Jon Snow was telling her, promising her that he was going to keep her safe no matter what. And she was like, no one can keep anyone safe. And I'd rather be dead than go back to him. So, like, that's another thing to kind of weigh on his mind right before a big battle. No, that's true. That's uh, very Uh, true. Then you have an interesting exchange between uh, Tormund and Sir Davos, where they're both kind of just having a little chat outside of the the war room. You know, they're discussing their their pre-battle plans. Uh, Davos was to go crap himself out of sheer nerves, and (laughs) Tormund was to, to have some drinks you know, to, to soften the nerves, I suppose. Right. Uh, they make an interesting statement about how they both followed kings that failed. This is true. And they say, well, Jon Snow is no king, and that's why we follow him, which is a very interesting choice of words, and I have a feeling maybe, maybe that might come into play later. <laughs> no, I mean, I think there is definitely that to be said about a leader that comes from the the you know the the battlefields or you know the the trenches instead of one that's born of nobility and not not to say that Rob Stark was bad or uh, Ned Stark or or even Stannis it's just or or uh, who was Tormund's king uh, Man's Raider Man, Man's Raider which I mean he was he was a crow so he probably fought too but. I guess there's a difference. Jon Snow, Jon Snow makes the difference. Yes, uh, he's he's definitely one that's fought alongside his men and one who's already died for them once. So <laughs> it gives them a little more, you know, leeway, I suppose, in the sense of someone to follow. Um, oh, we also then, talk about the fact that Jon Snow said, uh, you know, told the red the red lady not to not to bring him back to life if he dies. Yeah, and she's like, well, I'm only going to do what the Lord wants me to do, and if he wants to bring you back, then, you know, that's his deal, not mine. Right. And I think that's very comforting. (laughs) I was like, what God would do any of this? One we have. I was like, damn your dogma. (laughs) Uh, Did you have something else to say about Davros and Toron before I cut you off? Yeah, and then, uh, well, right after that scene ends where Davos decides to take a little walk, you know, sure enough, he comes upon the pyre where Shireen was burned alive, discovering the little stag that he had made for her. Right. Among the ashes. So he knows now, full on, what happened to her. I mean, 
it's hard for me to believe that he didn't know beforehand. Well, it seems like he just assumed that everyone, you know, at the camp was eventually slaughtered um, after the the original siege by Stannis failed. Right. Um, but yeah, he didn't know any details. All he knew was that Melisandre got out of there while the getting was good. And it was just assumed, well, you know, there was no survivors. But now he sees that this wasn't a case of, you know, they were overrun and, you know, these people were burned alive. That wasn't Ramsey's style. This was a straight-up sacrifice. And he knows Melisandre was responsible. Yeah. Yeah, so... so that's kind of weighing on his mind right now. Which you see <clears throat> after the battle, if you skip ahead a little bit, when he's obviously eyeballing her and wanting to take his revenge for the for the, the little girl. Yeah, he's he's giving her the, the death stare afterwards because you know, now that the battle's over and they have a moment to breathe and take it all in, it's like you're on my shit list, lady. <laughs> uh okay, uh, getting into the battle itself. Um Jon Snow makes the 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 one mistake he said that he wouldn't let he wouldn't happen is let uh, Ramsey Bolton bolt, uh, <clears throat> go him out because as they were talking about strategy they said we 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 made trenches so no one can come up to us from the sides as long as we stay put and him running out forward made the men run forward and thus the trenches were no longer in play. Yeah, so much for that plan. <laughs> yeah, sure enough, uh, <clears throat> Jon Snow tries to save poor Rickon. Rickon just becomes the target practice for for Ramsay Bolton. And um, at some point, it looks like Jon Snow is pretty much halfway down the battlefield. And the archers are getting ready to start letting loose their volleys. And he's like... Well, screw it. I'm already this far. I might as well freaking charge him. Yeah. Take out as many of them as I can. You know, it seems like he's pretty much resigned. He's like, this is my last stand. I mean, he's he runs towards them. Well, he charges at them with his horse first. The horse gets shot down. He unmounts it like Legolas style. <laughs> um, you know, very dramatically unsheaths. You know, t- takes his belt off, takes the sword out. You know, makes a stand and then starts charging the other horsemen on foot that are approaching him. And I mean, all of this is just really badass looking. It's, <laughs> it's so hard to describe just the sheer amount of badassery that was on display. It was, and and a lot of luck too that he wasn't killed many times over, not by arrows, not by the charging uh, men, not by the rest of the infantry, but or the infantry. But uh, he is sla- saved at the last moment when he realizes he's not going to be able to kill all of them on his own when his men finally catch up to him. Yeah, they they basically <clears throat> clash right around, like, all around him and um, make for probably one of the coolest battles ever filmed on TV. It's like the TV equivalent of a medieval Saving Private Ryan storming the Beach of Normandy type action sequence. It was just balls to the wall, like, people fighting all around, People getting taken out by accident, um, you know, arrows flying everywhere. It was just incredible. It was. It was. It was. In. It was very much. It was 
quite the sight to see. And then, you know, there's the points when he he finally focuses and he starts taking out guys himself and then uh, saving other people and then being saved himself. And then I think one of the cool, one of the strangest things or coolest things was just the, how fast the body started to pile up. And they even play with that to the point where Jon Snow himself starts to get lost in the body, like almost like he's drowning, like he's being pulled under a wave and he has to struggle just to get out. Yeah. It reminded me a lot of that scene in Apocalypto. Um, interestingly enough, where they also have to serpentine to not get like speared. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, like just dead bodies piling on like the, the, the shares. I have to admit, like I, didn't realize I stopped breathing for a certain part of that just out of sheer like like holy crap how like what's going on yeah. you really don't know what's going to happen at this you, point you're right exactly it's exactly true yeah uh you don't you, you I, I mean I would have been upset if that's how we saw John die just being covered by dead bodies and and being crushed to death uh you know but it was it was quite the it was quite the scene like you 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 get this that type of stop breathing anticipation uh when you see people drowning in movies and shows and stuff like that but this was it was very visceral i mean to 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 empathize with yeah that that slow sensation of being crushed and like the i think the um claustrophobia alone was like awakening something primal (laughs) (laughs) this was that sensation of like being buried alive almost to which um, he doesn't give up. He claws his way back out when it doesn't seem like there's any hope left. He still manages to fight through, pulls himself out. looks like he's being birthed amongst all these dead bodies in a way, which somebody pointed out on Reddit, of course, um, that scene, that, that the angle of the, the top-down view was very reminiscent of the scene in, um, I believe it was the end of season four, when Daenerys frees all of the slaves and the um, the Unsullied, and you know they basically welcome her and they call her mother, right? And she's basically like body surfing amongst all of these people. Um, it was framed in a very similar fashion, where you know she's right in the center, he's right in the center, um, basically laying on top of all these different just a sea of bodies. Of course, one of them they're alive, the other they're dead, but. The, the juxtaposition was really interesting. Like it was even down to like the color scheme, you know, one was light, the other one was dark. And the the difference between life and death, it was pretty cool. Like the, there was a lot of interesting thought and I normally don't push for the, you know, for people to look into the, the behind the scenes stuff. Right. But there's a lot of really cool behind the scenes stuff on this episode specifically because just how much went into making it. And uh, that whole sequence of him being crushed by bodies was actually not scripted. Really? Yeah, it turns out that they were running out of time and money for uh, you know for filming the battle because it was one of the most expensive episodes I in wouldn't doubt the it. show's history. And um, so the director, who was also the director of Hard Home, one of the other like top five best episodes of the show, um. He basically wrote to the producers and says, hey, so, like, we're running out of time and we have to go off script and uh, this is my idea. What do you guys think? 
And he said he fully didn't intend or expect them to agree. Because they're like, really? You just want to show him being crushed and stuff? But they wrote back immediately, sounds good, you know, keep us up with, you know, whatever's going on. And he was like, oh, okay, so let's film it. So they basically improvised it. No, that that was great thinking on his part. To yeah, because if you think about it, the the fact that you're you're showing Jon Snow inside these uh, this pile of bodies, you're taking the viewer and the camera away from the the main battle, which is what's going to cost the most money. But yet you still have this urgency. It doesn't feel like you're you're getting cheated at all. Yeah, no, it, it feels completely nor- like natural. Um, it's. Um organic i guess you could say like the flow of the battle right from chaos to the eye of the storm you know it starts to calm down but there's you're just surrounded by death it was really interesting really cool really well shot i mean the the cinematography geek in me was just all over this episode so when he finally gets out of the body or out of the the pile i thought that he had lost his sword but uh he has it in the very next scene so uh that was good but then it, it even becomes more dire because the Bolt uh, Ramsey Bolton's men have now surrounded them, and they're using the the shields as uh, battering rams or barricades, and trying to uh, crush the uh, John Snow's men. And that's when the Knights of the Vale show up and save the day. <clears throat> and Ramsey Bolton then takes off and to hide behind the the walls of Winterfell. Um, yeah. And as a last act of the giant takes down the wall or the gate that uh, keeps that's keeping Jon Snow's men out um, with spears and arrows and all kinds of stuff just stuck to him. He he busts through that that gate and and uh, gets him in there. <laughs> and finally, Ramsey Bolton takes the last blow by shooting an arrow into his eye. Why not give the giant some type of weapon? Like he's, I mean, I understand that he's a giant and he's his his strength alone is going to help as much as it can. I mean, it, it it does a lot of the the damage in the in the battle. But like, if you were to have cut down a tree and just gave him a club, it would have helped even more. Well, that was actually part of an interesting discussion on Reddit that I was a part of. Um, basically, we were, we were th- exactly what you're asking. Why didn't one one have like just a giant log or, you know, something to kind of help bat away, um, you know, cut through the swaths of, of uh, the Bolton men? Now, what we were basically arriving to, and this is just our own theories, is that giants don't need weapons. You you see them use bow and arrow uh, weapons when they're assaulting the wall back in season five five or four well the previous season where you know yeah Mance Raiders group shows up to the wall and starts attacking um a couple of them have these giant bow and arrow combos but they're mainly being used to um to basically throw like rope up to the very top of the wall so that they can climb up right um they're not really being used as weapons, although they do end up killing a few of the Night's Watch with them. That particular weapon wouldn't really be useful out in the battlefield here. No. 
It wouldn't. Because it would basically just be like, oh, hey, there's a giant arrow coming at us. Okay, like, let's kind of avoid it, you know? Um, other than that, it doesn't seem like they normally need weapons for their everyday life. I mean, like, in one of the first times we see the giants, um, they're hammering posts into the ground with their bare hands. And you know, I, they're just, like, clubbing it into the ground. I mean, I understand that. Yeah, it's true. They don't need a weapon, but a weapon is a tool. I mean, it it, it would only help in this particular battle. I mean... I imagine giants are more used to fighting alongside other giants and and stuff like that. But this was this is he is he is a lone giant. He I mean, if he were to have a weapon, it, it could have cha- greatly changed the tide of the of the battle. Oh, yeah, for sure. And again, it's not unheard of that they do use weapons because in the Battle of Hardhome, one one picks up a flaming log and starts batting away at the undead with it. Exactly. So it does happen. Why he didn't use one here? Well, I want to say budgetary reasons, maybe. <laughs> it would make it too easy for the giant to, you know, fight back. It, it was more dramatic to have him have to do just hand-to-hand combat with people with shields and spears. Although he did still create a lot of damage. I mean, he ripped one dude straight in half. <laughs> Um, this is this, it's very true. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that he didn't do he didn't do damage. It just it seems like it was a a misstep. But you're right. It more than likely was budgetary reasons, and uh, it still gave us a, a very cool, if not uh, heartfelt death for him. So well, he died a hero. He did. He did. He did. Oh. Uh, so then you have. <laughs> You know, uh, Jon Snow coming in and he throws his sword down, races to pick up a shield as Ramsay Bolton knocks back an arrow to shoot at him. And he takes he takes aim and, and luckily Jon Snow is able to just keep that shield in front of him and, and not get injured while arrows are coming at him. Yeah, he just... And those arrows were going pretty deep into the shield, so he's also... <laughs> kind of lucky that none of them went through his forearm <laughs> exactly i mean uh, the uh, i'm guessing ramsey bolton being ramsey bolton going for the headshot in in every one of that and john snow knows this so he knows exactly where to put the shield so that neither his forearm nor his head takes the damage because if bolton had gone for the legs in one of those shots or the torso we might be talking about a different story here but he oh, gets yeah. he gets to him knocks him on his ass and then just uh proceeds to pound his face into the ground with his bare fists. Yeah, it was pretty satisfying. You could tell <laughs> that a lot of that was fan service too. It was like this guy needs to get punished bad. Like like no root like death is good. no no quick death would be good enough. You know, he's got to suffer a little bit. So, I'm going to have to admit at the point where Ramsey, you know, or Jon Snow gets up from from Ramsey and he doesn't kill him. I thought we were going to have a repeat of the Mountain and the Red Viper. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was I was screaming at the TV, being like, "No, don't don't let him live. Definitely want to kill him." <laughs> yeah, like he'd have like a mini, like a silenced, like crossbow in his sleeve or something. And yeah, basically just something. Whip it up. 
Yeah, no, what I was kind of hoping would happen, though, because he stopped because of Sansa. Right. Like, he saw her approaching, and it was like, okay, so he got up, and what I thought was going to happen was he was going to give her um, his sword, Longclaw, and, you know, give it to her, and, you know, to give her the, the finishing move. Um, that was not how it went down, however. <laughs> Um, they tied him up, kept him alive, and she did get her comeuppance. That's right. And to think, for, for Bolton to think that his dogs wouldn't eat him was so exactly Ramsey Bolton. <laughs> yeah. That it was, it was, it was just, I mean, it almost was the perfect ending to him. Like, and they, they didn't shy away from showing it too. I thought really it was going to be more of, Sansa walking away as you heard it, but you saw that dog chomp down on his face. Oh, yeah. That, that <laughs> dog enjoyed himself some kibble. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we have to talk about a little bit about the, the conversation between the two of them. Um, he uh, he says that I'm, I've, or I'm, a little bit of me is in you. Yeah, that was an interesting thing to say because that can go many different ways. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can you can definitely say that it's just you know he's he's been there he's he's had sex with her she will always have that uh, part of him in her heart or her soul or her emotion or her head or whatever you want. But then you could take it the literal way, and we could say that he he sired a, a child into her that the night that they got married. And uh, I was thinking about this when they when he said it. And it's like, no, we would have seen it. You know, the, she's been away up in uh, the, the 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 Black Keeper, the Castle Black, for for quite a while. You know, we, we would see her showing uh, being pregnant. But then again, she's been wearing a lot of like layers <laughs> and fur and clothing and, and stuff like that. It's it could very easily be hidden. Yeah, that's, she must be hiding something down there. <laughs> so, uh, do you think that she could be pregnant? Well, I like the speech that she was giving about how his whole house, his name, everything's going to be forgotten. It reminded me a lot of Pan's Labyrinth. Okay. When the, that one captain's like, well, I guess I'm going to die, so... You know, make sure my child knows how I died, who I was, and the lady's like, "Man, your kid's not even gonna know your name," and then promptly shoots him. Um, I'm half expecting her that if she is pregnant, she's totally going to either kind of give him up for adoption, so to speak, and not give him any information as to his, you know, true parentage, or straight up. You know, and this would be kind of cruel of her, but straight up kill him, just kill the the infants. I I could see that being her plan, and this is just purely from a, a writing story point or story uh, point of view. But like I could see her making the plan to go through with the pregnancy and then eventually having the baby just so she could kill it. But I mean, obviously, when when she has the baby, she will she'll stop and be like, "Well, this is my child." I have to raise her, raise him, raise her, whatever. And because I don't think you'd want her character to go that way, 
of just killing a baby, it wouldn't be. It would. It would definitely be a turn. And I mean, which this is the Game of Thrones. It, it could go that way, <laughs> but uh, I don't think you'd want to do that because right now you have everybody on her side, audience-wise. Yeah, it would definitely be a little. Then again, though, um, they do have access to a Red Witch, so. Who knows what kind of thing she could work out to just kind of make sure that nothing's currently gestating in there. This is true. This is this is also true. Um, if she were to keep it, obviously she probably wouldn't tell her, tell the baby that the father was Ramsey Bolton, who would be a good scapegoat father. Well, that's uh, it. Could be any number of people. I'm guessing she's well some potential hints about what's going to be coming up now that she got help from the veil and Peter Baelish, uh, we might be seeing what's in store for her as in some sort of repayment. Right. Um, it stands to reason that one of the things he might want is her hand in marriage. Right. Join the houses. Um, if not with him, then possibly with, um, with Robin, and I but mean, technically they're, Peter Bailish, they're blood though. Her and Robin, right? Uh, yeah, they're technically cousins. Yes, they're cousins. I think first cousins. But that's um in the Game of Thrones world, that's kind of far enough removed that it's considered like not taboo. Okay, it's more like um like direct brother sister. Right. incestuous relationships like, that are frowned upon. But... Like Jamie and Cersei. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I thought was another interesting thing is that technically she was married off to Tyrion first. Now I know because Tyrion is no longer uh, a Lannister by name, um, he, I imagine that marriage is probably null and void. And thus, you know, the marriage to Ramsay Bolton was, was then legified or legalized. And then uh, that one's probably, or that one obviously now is <laughs> no longer available. But can Tyrion come back and be like, well, she is my wife. I married her. He could. I don't see him doing that, though. No, I don't I mean, see it, it happening was, either. It was a marriage of... Um... They were kind of forced to do so. Right. Neither of them really wanted it at the time he was with Shay anyway. And he never consummated the marriage. Yeah, he respected her enough to never, um, you know, actually touch her. Um, so I think he would be more than willing to basically just be like, you know what, let's just call it even. You go your way, I go my way. I think it is funny, though, that when she mar- she was forced to marry Tyrion, she thought it was such a disgusting thing and horrible because he was an imp but then eventually had to go and marry Ramsay Bolton and obviously she sees she saw what true evil was I, I wonder if she would look at Tyrion differently now oh yeah I think so I mean I think she'd realize that there's more to uh, she's the when she started her arc in the show she was very much about the idea of like the fairy tale princess marrying the prince kind of situation well that's true she and, I mean she did obviously have eyes for Joffrey when the the show first started and then she found out that guy was a was a dick yeah and then um she thought that um at first it was kind of promised that she would marry sir loris 
Tyrell, to which she seemed to be really into that idea. And I was like, oh, he's he's cute. He's a knight. You know, like that's that's actually not bad. Not knowing that he was actually gay and <laughs> exactly <laughs> wouldn't yeah, want to have anything like, to do with her. There was such cringy scenes of like her trying to flirt with him and him just being not interested. <laughs> her not getting the hint. Um, right. Yeah. So the the whole Tyrion thing is like, well, this is so totally not what I expected. You know, from a fairy tale wedding, you know, or marriage. And um, yeah, so she basically just um, kind of gave up on that whole idea. You know, just life just kept smacking her in the face every time she had some kind of preconception of, you know, what it was to be in a fairy tale, I guess. <laughs> so going into the season finale, what are some of the things you expect to see or hope to see or speculation or rumor? Or what, do you, what, do you want to, what do you want to give me? Well, right away, the biggest uh, elephant in the room to address is Cersei's trial. Right. Um, the trial by combat is no longer going to be an option, which was like what she was really counting on. Um, so what options does that leave her? Well, there's the rumor that she might have found a, a stash of wildfire. And what exactly she could be planning on doing with that? Well, I mean, good times ahead, I suppose. <laughs> Do you think that uh, Daenerys and her uh, army are finally going to leave Marine, Or do you think they're still going to stick around for a little while? Um, I think they still have some unfinished business there. I mean, they still have to deal with whatever remains of the harpy and the the, uh, the slavers. Um, not to mention the, I mean, a lot of the other kingdoms that she liberated had fallen back to slavery. Right. So I don't. I think she might. Although technically, I think that was what the whole point of the dragons decimating the fleet was. Is you know they were telling that one guy to go back and. You know, tell everyone what he saw, that he's only a life by the grace of the queen. And um, if anybody else keeps, you know, not falling in line, that they can expect dragon fire and all that. So that alone could have wrapped up that entire, like, plot thread. I don't think she's going to start making her way towards Westeros yet, though, because we still have um, Euron Greyjoy to contend with. And I think he's got some aces up his sleeve that they haven't revealed yet. Oh, like, uh, oh, I don't know if you, you said that off podcast or on podcast, so I won't say it, but yeah, you're off. I think, uh, I think you're right. I think they will wait around at least for him to show up so that, cause they know that he's coming, uh, since Yara and, and Theon told them, but, uh, and it will be interesting to see how they deal with, uh, that particular story plot. That's right. So we still got to see him show up and offer his manhood to Daenerys. And what do you think <laughs> and what do you think uh Jon Snow does from here? Does he I mean, does he does he, does he pro- proclaim himself the the head of family Stark and and the the new king of the north or does he hand those reins over to Sansa and basically just be her general? Well, that's a really good question because he's technically still a bastard, and the only one that can give him his name is the king. The king being uh, a Lannister slash Baratheon right. isn't likely to do so. Um, 
so it's it's more than likely that the the only official living Stark right now being Sansa, she might be the Lady of Winterfell, and he will just be probably her lieutenant. Um, unless something drastic happens, um, you know, between you know the beginning and end of the episode, I suppose, I I don't see. Like, I, I actually can't predict what's going to happen next. I don't know if he's going to stay at Winterfell, go back to the Wall and help out Castle Black, or, you know, make some kind of campaign in a different direction. It really could go either way. And I think the the last thing I wanted to bring up is probably, do you think in the next episode or the season finale, uh, will it happen in the season finale, or do you think they're going to save it for the next season? Will we see more of Bran and maybe some more... Of what happened at the Tower of Justice that day. The Tower of Justice. Is that not what it's called? The, the Tower of Joy. Joy! Sorry. Yeah. I like justice. You're still in, <laughs> you're still in DC Comics mode. I, that's I am. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. I think we're definitely... They set it up for a reason. And I believe we're going to finally see the end of... Or at least a continuation of that vision. Which is going to have a big impact on the plot, I think. that, Like I said, that's... Because of all the things that are still to be revealed, potentially, right, um, it's going to inform what Jon Snow's next move is going to be. Okay, so maybe Bran gets more of that that vision, then eventually makes his way to uh, Winterfell, and because uh, he's still got to get over over the wall and then to Winterfell, uh, but maybe tells Jon Snow what he's seen, what he knows, stuff like that is what you're saying? Yeah, I think uh, they're going to have to meet because otherwise, I mean, assuming there are some major revelations still in the future for Jon Snow um, and Bran is the key to that, Bran still has to get that information to Jon. There's not likely that Jon is going to find out, you know, by stumbling into an old, you know, tome or something in the crypts or whatever, like, Oh hey, what's this? I've never seen this before. What? You know. So I'm guessing Bran being the the one that holds the knowledge, he's got to make his way to Winterfell. So uh, that's that's what I'm guessing is in the, in store for that particular plot point. Good. That's uh, I think that's uh, everything I have to say. Do you have anything extra that you wanted to say? Uh, I'm just in anticipation for the next episode, <laughs> and we'll probably be counting the minutes till we can talk about that one this is true so that that leaves us to uh, our listeners if there's anything that you particularly want to say about the this past episode this past season uh please send it in to us you know uh, you can get a hold of me at at agent underscore of the underscore bat on twitter uh at geekly radio on twitter and john i'm uh, at magic bollocks on the Twitter and John Camarena on Facebook. And then you can always uh, talk to us and the rest of the community on Facebook, Geekly Radio. So if you check out our website, geeklyradio.com, you can get past episodes of this particular part, our, uh, podcast and archived episodes of our other podcasts on the Geekly Radio Network. But until next week, this has been the Geeks Watch on the Geekly Radio Network saying, always remember to geek, geek out. out. We now return you to your regularly scheduled program.